We've been asked to mark 767 and certainly thankful and delighted to be able to do that and look forward to singing that as we have these other songs a bit later in our service this morning. So good to be able to be together here today. It is, of course, Sunday, this blessed day in which we have the privilege of offering our heartfelt worship unto God. So thankful for everyone that's here, not only our membership, but certainly the visitors who've come our way. And it's our honest and earnest desire that all of us might be able to be drawn closer and nearer to that which God would have us to do and to be. The lesson of the day is a continuation of last Sunday morning's lesson, and that's why it's part two on that slide that's before you. We looked at some rumors last Sunday morning, rumors about the Church of Christ. And as we did that, this opening slide will be one that brings that appreciation to us. The slide that follows will be one also that not only lists what those were, but also a continuation of the rumors of this morning. And so as you look at the second slide with me, highlighting the features of on that occasion, we at least reminded ourselves quickly about this. First, Church of Christ is a denomination. That's a rumor. We in fact considered that in some detail and highlighted our Savior purchased but one church with His blood, Acts 20, 28. And He only promised to build one. And yet the word denomination highlights a valuing or numbering of one among many. And so that rumor was not true. Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ about 200 or a little bit less years ago. That again is a rumor. It's not at all true because Jesus promised to build His church and He never delegated the opportunity for others to in fact start one of their own. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And thus we found another rumor was a false one to be sure. Church of Christ doesn't believe in the Old Testament. Well, that again is not true. In fact, you and I know that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, to borrow the wording of Romans 15, 4. And therefore, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 11, those things that were written were our examples, the text says, and thus we study and learn from it, not for the law beneath which we serve, but in fact to learn those precepts and principles that will help us appreciate the New Testament gospel. The fourth and final rumor was the music of worship. As we study that together, we again have heard perhaps some people say the Church of Christ doesn't believe in music and worship. That isn't true. But we believe in the music God has authorized. And we do not believe in adding anything to that as if we have been given by God the right to determine what He should accept. He told us that He likes singing and that's what He'll accept. And if we add anything to that, who are we to tell God what He ought to in fact be willing to, to, to take and accept? In Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, we're told there that worship, when in fact it's done with commandments of men, has become vain. And we shudder at the thought of ever thinking that God will take vain worship. Today we come to some more rumors. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, those four we looked at last Sunday were by no means the only ones. And so let's turn our attention to the next slide, whereby we'll look at the first rumor of our study this morning. Have you in, in fact heard or perhaps encountered statements like this? The Church of Christ doesn't believe in salvation by grace. 
Maybe you and I have more than once at least indirectly heard that. And if one looks at the writings, sometimes offered by various religious individuals, this is in many cases a strong claim. Let's investigate it over the next few moments. Does the church of Christ believe in salvation by grace? As you begin that slide with me, there is no question about the reality of the biblical presentation of this. Ye are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And therefore the declaration is abundantly plain, isn't it? You are saved by grace. Immediately you and I can say this is a rumor that isn't true, just like the previous four haven't been true. You and I rest strongly on the biblical statements concerning God's grace. In fact, we cling to that so tightly. We love the doctrine of God's grace. But as you and I proceed to notice, might we quickly observe this. How and where is that grace to be found? Is grace a free consideration whereby one merely has some feeling and therefore that's supposed to be God's grace? Might you and I note with great care, God's grace is never, ever presented in the Bible that way. Grace is not a feeling like heartburn or some such thing. Grace is a matter to be found like this. Grace is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. And therefore, if one isn't in Christ, you do not have access to the marvelous, blessed wonder of God's grace. Not only that, consider this. In Ephesians 1.7, as well as Colossians 1.14, God's grace is attached to, His, to the blood of Christ. And therefore, if one isn't covered by that blood, if one does not appreciate the nature and reality of that blood, then truly one at this point is not fully in the confines of that sweet grace of God. To be sure, God's grace is magnificent. It is absolutely stunning. But He has told us in His Word how one applies it, how one is to be found in it. And so let's look at the next item on that slide. When the Bible presents the grace of God, how does it present it? And in what way might it be noted? Maybe there's no finer presentation of that than in Genesis chapter 6. Noah lived in a very wicked world. A world wherein the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. And yet here was a man, it says, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What did it mean then that Noah found grace? The next few verses easily inform us of that. Notice, Noah, you build an ark. Pitch it within and without. One door, three stories. You use gopher wood. Now there was the manifestation of God's grace. Grace was a system of instruction such that one who is obedient thereto will receive the blessings promised by that grace. Noah did exactly what God told him to do. Genesis 6.22, he built the ark, number of stories, right type of wood. And when he entered into it, God shut the door. He obeyed what God said for him to do and he would receive the salvation offered by virtue of God through the reality of that ark. You and I in many ways appreciate today the simple goodness of that same truth. God has given us a system of instruction. Is it His fault if we refuse to heed it? If we refuse to obey it? 
Well, certainly it isn't His fault. His Son died on the cross for you and me, and that gospel is the gospel of God's grace. The New Testament more than once uses that terminology. Acts 20, 24 is one such beautiful place. And therefore, as you look at some of the next examples, consider this with me. How many times the New Testament writers link obedience on the one hand with faith and or grace on the other? Surely Romans 1 verse 5 must be a beautiful presentation. As Paul began that letter to the Romans, he highlighted it was by the marvelous grace of God that they had been given instruction and thus could obey it. We cannot then separate God's grace from obedience to His will. And so when there are those who claim the church of Christ doesn't believe in salvation by grace, that's not true. In fact, we rest all that we do in service to God on His grace. That system of instruction presented in the gospel to which you and I can heartily obey. And isn't it true that all spiritual blessings, including salvation, are in Christ? As you and I close that slide then, look at one of the things that that grace immediately puts before you and me. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Notice grace teaches us something. Certain things I must not do, certain things I'm permitted to do. But grace teaches. May we again say grace is not merely a feeling. Never has been, never will be. Grace is housed within Christ Jesus. And so, this rumor is completely untrue. What about another rumor? Women. Have you heard this one? The Church of Christ is against women. The Church of Christ is a male chauvinist organization that doesn't believe in women. Well, may we quickly say that isn't true. Oftentimes, the evidence that's offered, well, they don't let women preach. They don't let women be elders. They don't let women teach a mixed Bible class. They're just against women. Well, let us, you and I, again, ask with some care about the reality of this rumor. More than once through the ages, it has been asserted. That church of Christ, they're, they're, they're rather chauvinistic. As you start at the top of that slide with me, First of all, wouldn't we be very much quick to say our key element, our key desire might be stated like this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Might we all be impressed with the encompassing nature of that statement. All that you do, be it in word or in action, in deed, let it be done with the authority of Christ. Let it be done in the name of Christ. Let it be done in the characteristic fashion and manner which the Master Himself would approve. With all of that said, it behooves us then to come to the middle of that slide and note this. Has the Lord Himself, by His inspired writers, then placed statements of restriction, at least statements whereby certain actions on the part of women in public worship are not permitted. We aren't trying to legislate for Christ. We're letting Him do the legislating. Did Jesus Himself say in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following, All power 
hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus, in fact, commissioned those apostles, you go and teach precisely, exactly, and only what I have bequeathed and delivered to you. Those apostles were not given the luxury and liberty of adding to it. You and I keep in mind that famous statement in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Peter, what you proclaim and preach, heaven has already decreed. It's already been bound there. Peter didn't make up the legislative laws of the church of our Savior. He was only permitted by God to proclaim what the Lord Jesus had already dictated. With that in mind, what might we say from 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12? As Paul gave those instructions in the first century era, those instructions were not in any way couched in the language of culture. He said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. He proceeded in the verses that follow to explain the rationale for it. Notice, because the man was first formed and then the woman. And he noticed in the transgression the woman was deceived, but the man wasn't. Notice those bases upon which Paul made those inspired statements, he took all the way back to the events at the creation and then in Eden. It wasn't in any way couched in the language of the culture of the city of Ephesus, which is where Timothy was when Paul wrote that to him. That didn't have anything to do with it. And so today, be it in Putnam County, Tennessee, be it in Shanghai, China, be it in St. Petersburg, Russia, it matters not. Those statements in which a woman has not been given the delegated authority to usurp authority over the man, that is still as lasting and as pertinent and as needful as it was then. Why don't we add the following to that? In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, yet another New Testament passage, Paul highlighted to the church in Corinth, notice a different city located many hundreds of miles away. They too were told, won't women should keep silence in the worship. When it comes to the teaching authority over the man, God has not given her that capability in a sense of doing that with God's approval. As we approach near the bottom of that slide, isn't it true? It's God who determined an elder must be a man because he must be the husband of one wife. And a woman can't be a husband. She can't. And therefore, be it an elder or a deacon, both have been asserted by God with these qualifications. It must be a male. Was that our idea? Of course not. That was heaven's will. And we certainly must appreciate that God always does what's right and He does what is in accordance to His will. Genesis 18.25 To those things might we add this. It is very much true that God makes His gospel available to women as well as to men. A woman has every bit as much right to be saved from her sins as a man does. Can you think of some New Testament examples? What about Lydia in Acts 16? 
Paul preached to that woman and she obeyed the gospel. In Acts 8 verse 12, when Philip preached to those in Samaria, some obeyed and text says some of them were women. It is true in Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. The gospel is for all. But in the appreciation of the church, God has made some statements of restriction relative to what He permits a woman by a heavenly authority to do. And I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. At that point, might you and I close by saying, this is a rumor. The church of Christ believes in women, but we believe in women participating in the way that God permits them by His authority to do it. And so we have dispelled another rumor. What about rumor number three today? Perhaps you've encountered this one. Have you heard individuals perhaps in a bit of rather surly talk discuss, well, you church of Christ, that, kind of, that group of people, they're just modern-day Pharisees and Jesus condemned them. And therefore Jesus, by implication, must condemn us as well. Now often there, of course, is an idea behind that. They're too interested in law-keeping. They ought to be more interested in love and more interested in just free appreciation of the goodness and the mercy and the fine presentation of the ways of, uh, and love of heaven. They are, shouldn't be so interested in the laws of the New Testament. Now you'll notice, can you begin to see the correlation? The Pharisees were interested in keeping law and Jesus condemned them and so... Jesus condemns those Church of Christ people today when they're too interested in law-keeping. Have you heard that rumor? Have you heard its assertion? Let's develop it. First of all, may we be quick to dispel it. That is not a true rumor. It's only a figment of somebody's imagination, a set of ideas rather loosely put together. They've built a straw man and blown it over and made claim that that is the way of heaven. Let's begin at the top. First of all, we must agree, Jesus did rebuke the Pharisees more than once. May I call to your attention Matthew 16, verses 6 and following, as well as Matthew 23, verses 3 and following. In fact, Jesus said, make sure you do what they bid you to do, but don't do what you see them doing. They're hypocrites. They pronounce one thing, but they themselves live in a different way. The New Testament never looks highly upon hypocrisy, does it? It didn't then, it doesn't now. That constantly causes you and me to think with care about our life. Am I living the way I encourage others to? You and I must never be hypocritical. Our faith must be genuine, earnest, honest, in accordance to biblical truth. Hypocrites are looked upon with such disfavor in the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, seven times Jesus plainly to the face said, You Pharisees are hypocrites. You go out searching for converts and when you've made one, you make them twice more a child of the devil than you are. How would you have liked to have heard that? Isn't that strong? To directly tell somebody, you're making them a child of hell even more so than you that doesn't sound very inviting. On another occasion, he said, 
you know what? You're much like coffins. On the outside, you look all whited and presentable, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones, rotten, useless. He told the Pharisees that. Now, may we be quick to note, hypocrisy then was frowned upon by our Master, and it certainly still is. But we can't question the fact Jesus denounced them. And you'll notice in Matthew 23, verse 23, the Lord did not denounce them because they were interested in keeping the law. He denounced them because they failed to appreciate the other features of it. Have you thought about that? He didn't denounce them because they were interested in keeping the law. In fact, He praised them for that. He says, these ought you to have done. So notice already that rumor that some have had, that can't be true. Jesus didn't denounce them for keeping the law. In fact, He praised them for that. What He denounced them for was they overlooked the weightier matters of it. Now, when you and I give that application, our consideration of that today, look at where that leads us near the bottom of that slide. You and I must be intensely interested in keeping God's commandments. Isn't it true? That's the way in which we manifest that we love Him. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. In other words, that's the means whereby we illustrate and demonstrate that we in fact do love Him because we do what He tells us to do. Later in 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Question, if it then is the case that God's love, you and I, illustrate to Him by the way we keep His commandments, if I fail to keep His commandments, it's plain and simple. I don't love Him. I don't love Him. This rumor is sheer nonsense. Jesus didn't denounce the Pharisees for keeping the law. He denounced them for hypocritically overlooking the weightier matters of it. And today, He demands that you and I keep His law. That's the way we show we love Him. That's the way we manifest the love of God. Perhaps we might ask this, Who is it that will go to heaven? In Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. If I don't obey Him, I'm not going to go to heaven. On the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Doing His commandments is essential. It's required. And therefore, as we come to the bottom of this slide, we must appreciate this. Our obedience must be described in ways like this. Romans 6.17 perhaps puts the icing on that discussion. But thanks be unto God that ye obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Obedience from the heart. We obey the Master because we love what He did for us. We're thankful He went to the cross paying the price for your sins and mine. And in our honest and open response, we delight to do what He tells us to do. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14. And thus, as we close that slide, might we say this, the church of Christ is far, far from being modern-day Pharisees. And therefore, it is just another rumor that you and I can blow to the wind. What about a fourth rumor today? Maybe you've encountered something along this line. Those Church of Christ folks, they think they're the only ones going to be saved. The only ones who are going to be blessed to go to heaven. Might you and I give some thought, developing an appreciation of that, and we'll use that to highlight in us a rather needful and essential response. First of all, why don't we begin like this. May I ask, what about the faithful of the Old Testament? So there were some people who were never members of the church of Christ. Were they saved? What about Moses? What do you think? What about Noah? What do you think? You and I, in fact, are given this impression when our Savior ascended that mount of transfiguration, Matthew 17, there with Him appeared Moses and Elijah. The clear impression that both of those Old Testament characters were saved Neither one was ever a member of the church of Christ. The church of Christ didn't begin until Acts chapter 2. It didn't begin until the spring of AD 30. It didn't begin until that first resurrection day, that first day I should say, the first Pentecost day following the Lord's resurrection. And yet those Old Testament worthies, those were individuals who themselves were saved without ever being a member of the church of our Lord. What about babies? A child is born into this world in a safe condition. It doesn't have any sin. A little baby is born pure and blameless. Didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 9 that those babies that Rebecca had in her womb, remember those, those children? Paul said they'd done neither good nor bad. Isn't that interesting? Or what about that scene in Ezekiel 28, 15, where the king of Tyre, it was explicitly said to him, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways until the day that iniquity was found in thine heart. Babies are not born in sin. Now, I know that there are religious doctrines that have made claim to that, but it isn't based on the Bible. Babies are not, nor were they ever born in sin. They're born in the following way. Question. Aren't we told in Zechariah 12, verse number 1, that God forms the spirit of man within him? If God forms the spirit in that little baby, is there something innately sinful about the fact of being born? Otherwise, how can it possibly be that the baby's born in sin? The baby isn't born in sin. There comes a time, a moment in life, when that human being knows the difference between right and wrong. And at that point, then doing what's wrong or failing to do what one knows to do makes one guilty of sin. Let's then march a little bit more forward. One thing you and I can say with certainty based on that proclamation of the New Testament is this. Jesus Christ established the church. Now might we ask, who comprises it? We understand so well that the human family has often had problems with this, but it's not because of biblical statement. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. 
Acts 2.47. In Ephesians 5 verse 23, again, Paul by inspiration wrote, He, that's Christ, is the Savior of the body. And that body is the church. No wonder then we appreciate that third statement. The church consists of those who are saved. There is no person having reached an age of accountability who is saved who is not a member of the church. Such defies the very definition the New Testament gives to what the church is. Therefore, might we note this next statement. Jesus promised in rather certain terms that He would save those in that body. Therefore, it's incumbent, it's necessary, it's essential to be a member of that body. No wonder we can then say this. Acts chapter, or rather Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body. We learned that early in our discussion of that first rumor last Sunday morning. Might we then make this application? Will there be individuals in heaven who are never a member of the church of Christ? Well, children, Old Testament worthies. But in the modern era today, we notice that by inspiration, these New Testament writers have asserted that those individuals having reached the age of accountability, having reached knowing wrong from right, when they were saved, they were added to the church. And therefore, it's that wonderful requirement placed before you and me. Our desire to be right with God leads us invariably to appreciate the church that His Son founded and to strive in faithfulness to always be a part of it. Might you and I note this. There are many individuals, according to the New Testament, who perhaps were baptized and added to that church of our Lord, but who will end up lost. Is that a possibility? What about those of the church of Sardis in Revelation 3? It is a haunting description. Here were individuals who themselves were part of this congregation of the Lord. The Lord wrote to them and said, I know your works. And there are some of you there who are faithful. And some of you there who are strong. And some of you there who have not denied my name. But to the rest of you, Jesus said, I'll blot your name out of the book of life. Now that sounds like eternal loss. Names that were once in the book of life. Faithful members of the blood-bought body of Christ who the Lord's eraser will remove because they stopped being faithful. So may I say, just because one at one time was a member of the Lord's body doesn't mean one will be saved. Aren't we commanded to be faithful until death? Revelation 2 verse 10. Aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 15 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, if you or I become unsteadfast, if we become movable, if we become unfaithful, we will have lost our salvation. Why don't we close that slide then like this? Didn't Jesus in a thunderous way make this statement in Matthew 7? In verses 21 and following, He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Here were individuals 
individuals who themselves had preached in the name of Christ. They had cast out demons in the name of Christ. They had been successful in doing many wonderful works in the name of Christ. The problem was the Lord said, I never knew you. Doesn't that highlight in you and me today the needfulness, how that this rumor should lead us to say only those who are faithful to God. And in this present era, that means to be saved, I'll have to be a member of His body by definition. I'll have to be a member of the church. And so if I'm not faithful in that body, then regardless what others may say or claim, I'm not saved. Where do you and I stand this morning? Eight rumors. Sometimes these draw our attention away from the truth of the Bible, and men give attention to rumors. But did you note the lesson text? Brother John read earlier in our hearing today, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Our interest is to be grounded in truth. We really have not much interest in rumors because rumors won't save anybody. Rumors won't lead anybody to heaven. Rumors are merely assertions of men who often are misled and who, are, and who misunderstand. We want to do what the Lord says. And these eight rumors, though men have often discussed them and presented them, they aren't biblically accurate because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Today, there might be someone in this audience who has been motivated by rumors that others have used. And maybe you've even been perhaps misjudged and by that statements in your own life or actions which have not been as they ought to be. Jesus loves you. He died for you. His is the only way to be saved from your sins. Today, don't you realize the plan of salvation is needful for you? If you have never become a Christian, why not today? What better day could there be? The 15th day of October in the year of our Lord, 2017 A.D. If we could help anybody today as you respond in faith to the gospel plan of salvation, you're commanded you must believe in Jesus with all of your heart, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You must confess the name of Christ as your Savior, Romans 10, verse 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38 and 1 Peter 3.21. If today we could assist you in that way, what a great day of joy and celebration for you and yea, for us and for the angels in heaven. But if you have been a Christian and perhaps faithful for a time, but that no longer is descriptive of you, maybe you've forgotten your first love. The church in Ephesus did, Revelation 2.5. If we could, in fact, pray to God for you upon your belief and your repentance and your confession of those errors, we are promised that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Today we make this opportunity available to you just as the New Testament makes this issue as well. And we would invite you to come and exhort you to do it and to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.